Hi there, I'm James Dapache, and this is Coffee and a Case Note. Team, today we are talking about a purchaser who is also the plaintiff and a defendant who is a company and we're going to talk about the commercial arrangement they entered into. Right, the arrangement that the two parties entered into was that our purchaser was going to purchase 45% of the shares in the company, in the defendant we're going to speak about later today. <clears throat> and where things get interesting is the price. So 45% of the shares in the defendant were valued at around about $140 million by a consultant who was assisting the defendant company to uh, figure out whether they're going to go ahead with this transaction or not. <coughs> and <coughs> apologies, the agreement is entered into between the two and an advanced payment is required to be made by our purchaser. That advanced payment is $6 million and that advanced payment is made. So we've got $6 million in the hand of the target company. Now, what is interesting is the nature of this agreement as I referred to before. $140 million is listed as the sort of beginning uh, prima facie price, we might put it that way, for the purchase of this 45%. But what the contract does, and what's fairly unusual, the court notes, is set in place a regime of some other conditions that need to be put in place to then lead to a further negotiation of that price. And there are some steps that have to go through like the directors of the target company uh, having to be okay with the purchase price, the shareholders having to pass a resolution, and also for some audited accounts to come from the target company into the hands of the plaintiff. And once we've got those audited accounts, as you might imagine, the purchaser will have a clear idea on whether it wants to accept that prima facie purchase price of 140 million or whether they want to talk about it a little bit more. Now, things progress reasonably well, although there is a little bit of a delay uh, between the agreement being entered into and the convenient getting of audited accounts and the parties enter another subsequent agreement that just sort of extends the term of their original purchase agreement. Now, the issue becomes these audited accounts. <coughs> Our defendant has engaged auditors for the purpose of providing them. And there is a term in the agreement that says both the purchaser and the target company are to use good faith to do their best to get this audit rolling. And so the audit's rolling along and uh, the external audit firm is asking for information and is compiling accounts and is thinking about this stuff. Uh, and there is a due date of 20 May 2016. And what is interesting as we read the judgment and see the chronology unfold is that in around early May 2016, the auditors are put on notice of this potential finance issue that arises for the defendant. And there's some fairly substantial back and forth in the correspondence about this. Thank you very much. That looks fantastic. Appreciate it. There's some fairly extensive back and forth between the purchaser, the target company, uh, and the auditors, forgive me. About the finance position of the target company. And this sort of back and forth delays the accounts. And then as we get to the sharp crescendo of the chronology, we have uh, this day of 20 May 
2016, where things get very sharp indeed. At about 3.30, we've got the purchaser checking in with the defendant and words like as soon as possible and you know, urgently and this sort of stuff are referred to about getting these audited accounts by 20 May as both parties have undertaken to use their, uh, their, their good faith obligation to do. Now, what eventually happens is that uh, at about 11.57 on 20 May 2016, China time, our auditors send an email, uh, including the audited accounts, and a little bit after midnight on 21 May, the parties receive those audited accounts. So they are late um, in accordance with what was agreed in the contract. So we find ourselves in a position where as time marches on, our would-be purchaser, who does not indeed go ahead with the purchase, issues a termination notice on 30 June 2016. And that termination notice essentially says, uh, you're in breach the contract, we're terminating. And then the response is uh, the sort of response you might expect for anyone familiar with the sort of letters that fly around when people start talking about repudiating a contract. Uh, essentially they go, we're not in breach, you're in breach. Uh, which is to say, you're repudiating the contract and we're gonna terminate. You can't terminate, we're gonna terminate. Um, and that is sort of where we find the heart of our dispute today. Today's dispute is our purchaser saying, I want my $6 million back. And our target company, our defendant, saying purchaser did not comply with the good faith obligation and had no basis for issuing that notice of termination on 30 June. So let's work through those things. Uh, the good faith obligation um, is in writing. So it's not an implied term of touchy-feely, the law says you're meant to be nice to each other. It is a uh, formal express written term in the contract that says the parties are to use good faith to cause the auditors to be able to prepare these audited accounts by this 20 May 2016 deadline. Now, interestingly, um, the proper construction or interpretation of the contract finds that 5.30 p.m., not midnight, was the actual deadline. Not that much turns on it, but we'll dive in a little bit. The court dives into this good faith argument, because what the defendant says is, um, the purchaser's approach to the uh, auditing process was not in good faith. The defendant's saying, oh, they didn't engage properly. And one of the examples the court draws is to say, well, the purchaser didn't prod the auditor um, and give them a firm deadline to say, hey, hey, it's 5.30 p.m. on 20 May, like we've got to get this rolling. And the court says, firstly, well, if there's a good face obligation for the purchaser to go ahead and do that, then surely um, logic dictates and, and proper commercial construction of the contract and an understanding of what good faith means dictates that if they've got to do it, well then surely you've got to do it as well. And so if they're in breach from doing that, from failing to do that, then you're in breach for failing to do that. And so the court's not uh, compelled by that argument. But the most fundamental point moving past that is causation. The court says, well, um, there's nothing to say that if at about 3.30 p.m., which is the relevant time on 20 May, when this all became apparent and the um, target company uh, really applied the pressure for the ASAP point uh, for the audited accounts. The court says, well, there's nothing to say if at 3.31 p.m. our purchaser pinged off a, hey, hey, it's urgent, 5.30, that the audited accounts would have arrived by 5.30. There's no evidence before the court about the auditor's internal processing and you know what sign-offs and policies and scanning into email and e-signatures and whatever else needs to happen to finalise the audit would have done anything. And so 
the court is comfortable in uh, forming a view that the purchaser is not in breach of its good faith obligation, and so our target company fails on that point. Second thing our target company says in trying to say, you can't get your $6 million back, is to say that the notice of termination issued on 30 June 2016 uh, was inappropriately issued. There was no basis to issue it. Um, now the court works through a fairly fine bit of contra uh, contractual interpretation and comes to the view that essentially that's wrong uh, and that for technical reasons arising from the fine detailed terms the parties agreed, the purchaser was indeed entitled to uh, issue that notice of termination so it was valid. Uh, and there was no problem with the termination of the agreement and what flowed from the failure of the good faith argument and the failure of the improper notice argument, if we call it that, uh, is that the defendant failed in its arguments. The plaintiff succeeded in its claim and the defendant, the target company as we've been referring to it, had to pay the $6 million back plus a bit of interest. I hope that discussion assisted you and I look forward to speaking again soon over another coffee and in respect of another case note. Cheers.